But it turns out it's been a very mild winter, gas prices have plummeted, and it turns out Russia has massively overplayed its hand. Welcome to the Powers That Be Daily, Puck's podcast focused on the intersection of Wall Street, Washington, Silicon Valley, and Hollywood, and the players who run it all. I'm Peter Hamby. It's Tuesday, January 24th. Today, Julia Yaffe joins me to talk about the price cap on Russian oil exports and whether the EU and its allies are actually doing something that was unthinkable just one year ago, eliminating the West's energy dependence on Russia. And later, Eric Gardner stops by to explain the real reason Alec Baldwin is being charged with involuntary manslaughter for the Rust movie set shooting and why legal experts doubt the prosecutor can make her case. We'll hear about all that and more on today's episode of The Powers That Be. Happy Tuesday, everybody. I'm joined by Julia Yaffe today to talk about Russia and Ukraine. Specifically, you know, I think like the third rail when it's always come to negotiations with Russia, which is energy, oil and gas. Julia, are you ready to give me an economics lesson? Uh, sure. I'll try my best. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I feel like I've spent all day getting one from other people, so I'll, <laughs> I'll do my best to give one to you. Thank you so much. With apologies to my AP economics uh, professor, it was never my strong suit. Um, so basically, what I want to talk to you about is this Russian oil cap that the EU, in consultation with their ally, us, the United States, implemented, I think, back in December, limits the purchase price of Russian oil to $60 a barrel. I believe there's an exemption for pipeline oil. This applies to Russian oil moving on ships. Can you just explain to me and the audience of Powers That Be, how, how does this work? How is this different from another kind of oil sanction? And is it working? So let's break that down. Let's start with the first question of how it works. So basically, this started around as an idea in the Biden administration in the spring slash summer. And the idea was to find a sweet spot where you could get Russia to still produce oil and not create an oil crisis when the world was going through this inflationary economic, mm -hmm. maybe not crisis, but not a happy spot, right? So get them to still produce, so pay them enough money to still produce, but cut into their profits so that they wouldn't be able to bankroll the war effort, right? They wouldn't be able to bankroll their invasion of Ukraine. It took a lot of negotiating. They got the G7 and Australia into it. And the idea is that basically you get punished for reinsuring or providing services to anybody who is shipping oil coming from Russia. So that means you're reinsuring them, you're providing marketing services, basically you're touching it. And you can get fined, you can get excluded from the oil exchange, all kinds of sanctions can be coming your way, economic punishments essentially, mm -hmm. unless you keep that oil price under $60. You can do any kind of business you want with Russia, uh, Russian oil if you keep it at $60 a barrel or less. And the idea is pay them enough money, again, to produce oil, because Russia is still one of the world's biggest oil producers, mm -hmm. to not send the world into an energy crisis at a moment where we're in an inflationary, not crisis, but whatever you want to call it. 
but don't let them profit from it. So just just enough to cover their expenses, maybe a little bit more, but not much more than that. So the idea is that it boxes them in in such a way where enough consumers, buyers uh, around the world are basically saying we're only going to buy at 60. And so Russia can theoretically say we're not going to abide by that. We're just going to sell all our oil to India and China. But there's such a market for it and such a dependence on, on it in the Russian economy that shit, I guess we have to do $60. There's no way out. Well, so here's the thing. So on one hand, Russia said, fuck you, G7. We're not going to do business with anybody who abides by the price cap. So a kind of tit for tat. Uh huh. Right? So you don't want to do business with us. We don't want to do business with you. So they themselves then close themselves off from anybody playing this game, right? So they're basically saying, we're not going to play your game like you want to buy our oil at $59 a barrel so that you can, you know, not run afoul of G7 rules. Well, we're not going to sell to you. But here's the thing, because there's OPEC and then there's, you know, Europe, which has cornered the insurance market, for example, and they have a certain amount of economic power and they can kind of make the weather to quote, you know, to <laughs> use the Russian expression. And so what has ended up happening is that Russia has also boxed themselves in by saying this, and they're now left with very few buyers who are like, well, isn't that interesting? You don't have very many buyers for your oil all of a sudden. So we'll buy it from you at a very sharp discount. Mm -hmm. That's not even close to $60 a barrel. We'll buy it from you for $40 a barrel. And if you don't like it, take a lap around the marketplace, see what you come back with, but we're pretty sure you're going to come back to us and be happy to sell it to us for $40 a barrel. Hmm. So what is this doing to the Russian economy? I mean, this has been in place for about a month now. Is this crippling them or are they just humming along? Uh, neither so far. So it's only been a month, but their tax revenues are definitely falling. Mm -hmm. What you should know about Russia is that for ages now, for decades, the Russian budget has been pegged every single year to a very specific oil price. And Russia itself has its own type of oil. It's not Brent, it's Urals, so like the Ural Mountains. Mm -hmm. And the gap between what Brent crude is selling for and what Urals is selling for on the world market is pretty big right now. Hmm. And so the Russian treasury and what the Urals are selling for is far lower than what the Russian budget is pegged to. They're also, the Russian treasury is also taking in less per barrel of oil on taxes and levies than it mm. used to. So they're taking in less money, so it's working, but it has not yet kneecapped the Russian economy. Uh, but it's only been a month, so in some ways it's too soon to tell. Is there any indication that this is filtering out to all of the rich oligarch types who are worried about their personal bank accounts and are cranky with Vladimir Putin because of it? Well, here's the thing. It turns out that, if anything, this is creating another market for other people, right? So ah. the Urals crude is a very specific type of oil, and it's a pretty narrow market, whereas Brent is the main type of oil on the market. Uh -huh. 
oil experts, please don't kill me if you're listening to this. But basically, <laughs> basically before the Russian invasion of Ukraine, there was one place you could find out the price of Ural's crude per barrel. You call this one petroleum analytics place who would call traders and they would tell you what they were buying and selling Ural's crude for per barrel. Mm -hmm. But now everybody's lying to them. Hmm. So for example, people are saying it's $40, but they might be selling it for 55 just under the cap and then pocketing the difference and storing it somewhere offshore so that they don't have to pay the Russian tax man. Mm. And then in terms of the broader Russian economy, it looks like it's taken about, we're almost a year into this war, but Russian imports have basically recovered. Russians have found a way to import and figure out a way to re-import everything that they, almost everything that they have had been importing before. And that means everybody's kind of making a killing off of this thing, but now it's harder to import that stuff. It all, all comes up with a much bigger markup, right? Because it's harder to import it. So there's a lot of people making a killing, but prices are higher. Living standards are going down. Poverty mm -hmm. is rising. Mm -hmm. The Russian government has to spend more money to keep more people from sinking into more poverty, mm -hmm. right? Meanwhile, their tax revenue is decreasing in part because of the oil price cap. So it's creating these kinds of tensions. It looks like the Russian government will be running at a deficit for the first time in a long time in 2023. And that's also very significant. So again, it's very early days. We don't know how this will play out, but the signs aren't great for Russia. And what's interesting is that, if you remember going into this war, Russia was very cocky and was like, we have Europe and the West by the nether regions, right? Because we supply all their oil, all their gas, and we can do whatever we want with you people. But it turns out it didn't take that long for, for example, for Germany to go from importing 60% of its gas from Russia to 0%, right? And to get away from Russian dependence. And now I don't know how long it will take, if ever, for these Western countries to go back to purchasing energy from Russia. No, that calls to mind, again, when I was uh, teaching myself remedial economics, I read, what else? A Vox article explaining this Russian oil cap. But there was a quote in there uh, that you just reminded me of, and I just pulled it up from this energy analyst that they quoted. And she said, quote, if anyone told you a year ago that the EU is going to effectively eliminate its dependence on fossil fuel imports from Russia over a period of a year, you would have thought they're a complete lunatic. And I think right? that's true. Like, I mean, I, I remember when we first started having these conversations, shoot, like 13 months ago, that was the thing. Like, like we can't completely cut off Russia. Uh, we need them to... Keep, keep the heat on. Yeah, I remember, you know, I'm, I'm in Rome right now. I remember we were having these conversations with you, with Ben, mm -hmm. in the fall about when I was in Rome then, about how people here were very worried about what the winter would look like and if there would be an energy crisis and how people would literally keep the heat on. But it turns out it's been mm -hmm. a very mild winter. Mm -hmm. Gas prices have plummeted. And it turns out Russia has massively overplayed its hand. And... Again, it turns out that when you're just a supplier of basic commodities, you don't run the show as much as you think you do. That brings me to my final question for you, which is I've seen some commentary out there in the form of op-eds and you know foreign policy magazine pieces saying, I'll read one headline here uh, from MSNBC, why the world economy no longer needs Russia. Do you think that's true? Or is that a little too optimistic at this point? 
You know, I'm going to be honest. I don't think the world economy ever really needed Russia all that much. It needed Russian energy. But again, like part of the reason, for example, that the West doesn't need Russian gas as much this winter is because British and German wind turbines are overproducing, right? So like the world is changing and Russia before the war was a lot like Saudi Arabia. It imported a lot of things. It didn't make a lot of things and it paid for them with commodity exports. So in many ways it needed the world more, a lot more than the world needed it. And Russia, I think, got it backwards. Putin got it backwards. And this has been a kind of rude awakening. Now, whether it brings Russia to its knees is a different question because mm-hmm. Russians will, both the government and the people will take a lot of pain and suffering a lot more than Americans and Westerners will. So they, they're they perfectly capable of, you know, hobbling on for another like 10, 20 years <laughs> until they're not, until, you know, they grab their pitchforks and come for everybody. But again, they really, they got it backwards about who needed whom. All right, Julia, thank you so much. Thanks, Peter. When we come back, Ben Landy talks to Eric Gardner about Alec Baldwin's legal risk from the fatal shooting on the set of Rust. Welcome back to The Powers That Be. I'm here with Eric Gardner. Happy Tuesday, Eric. Happy Tuesday to you, too. I wanted to ask you about Alec Baldwin, who is expected to be charged with two counts of involuntary manslaughter, which struck me as both unfair and also potentially hugely consequential for Hollywood. We'll start with the question of fairness in the case against him, because he was rehearsing a scene in this movie, Rust, when a gun he was holding suddenly went off. It killed a cinematographer. There were supposed to be blanks in this gun, and for some reason there was a real live bullet instead. But Isn't that the fault of the props expert or the armorer on set and not the actor who's handed a loaded gun? That's certainly going to be his contention. I mean, the prosecutors are going to try to make the case that he was reckless, that he should have checked to make sure that the gun was safe. His uh, defense will be that, you know, this wasn't his job. This wasn't his duty to, to do it. There were other people on the set who, you know, were supposed to make sure that the gun was not loaded. In interviews, he's, you know, he he said that you know he he didn't believe that that he was doing anything wrong and uh sure i think that as we saw right after charges were announced uh you saw some in the hollywood community rallying to his side um the screen actors guild for instance put out a statement saying that this was not the actor's job so so sure i think that uh that's that's certainly going to be something that he rallies behind Is there also a lot of skepticism within the legal community about the prosecutor's ability to make this case? Yeah, I think it's a tough case to bring. I mean, they have to prove that he was reckless. They have to prove that, you know, his mindset was such that he should have been more careful on set, that he should have done things to ensure that no one was going to get harmed. And, you know, I just think that's a a really tough thing to do Uh, from a prosecutor's standpoint. I I know that there were a lot of people surprised that that charges were brought. That being said, I'm not shocked that charges were brought. I mean, this case has gotten a lot of attention. Um, I'm sure that, you know, a lot of uh, prosecutors are politically ambitious and it doesn't hurt to have attention from this case on them. But they better make sure that they win it. They better be able to prove the you know the case otherwise it's going to you know be quite embarrassing for them 
Yeah, I'm sure the prosecutor is ambitious. There's also maybe a cultural disconnect with the New Mexico prosecutor being from a state where guns are more prevalent, where you might expect a person handling a firearm to be responsible for it, as opposed to an actor in L.A. who is maybe unlikely to have real gun safety training. The gun is a prop for them. Someone hands them a prop and they assume it's safe to use. What would it take for this prosecutor to actually prove that Baldwin himself acted negligently? I think the prosecutor has to show that Baldwin did something that was outrageous in the eyes of a reasonable person, that someone in his position would have acted differently, would have acted more rationally, would have taken more care, and someone you know would not have been shot. Um, if they can't prove that, then then you know I think that the jury's going to exonerate him. Do you expect this case to change protocols in Hollywood in terms of how weapons are actually used in movie production? Because it sounds like there's already plenty of actors coming forward saying that this makes them really nervous, that there's really no reason to be using real guns on sets anymore. There's certainly been a conversation about that. And, uh, you know, there's been a reflection on what the standard should be, who should be on the sets, who should be touching guns, uh, that sort of thing. But overall, I, I don't know. You know, I, I'm not sure that too much is going to change. I think that uh, this is going to be seen as just some sort of, you know, weird situation that, that got out of hand. I think broader, there still deserves a conversation about the use of guns um, in Hollywood. But I, I'm not sure that this specific instance is going to change anything just as past deaths on sets, whether it's, you know, Brandon Lee on The Crow in the 90s or that woman who, who died on, on the train tracks on a Georgia shoot a few years ago changed anything. I mean, these things come, come and go and people, you know, talk about it for, for a bit and then they kind of move on. Yeah, it wouldn't be the first time that there's been a tragic accident on set. Eric, you reported yesterday that you think that if this case actually does go to trial, that Baldwin's attorneys would be likely to bring forward a parade of celebrity endorsers, friends of Baldwin, fellow actors, people who are supportive of him, who could testify to the fact that that it would be common that if he were handed a gun, it would not necessarily be his responsibility to check that weapon to make sure that it had blanks as opposed to real bullets. Do you think that kind of testimony would be compelling to a jury? I think it's quite possible. I don't know for sure, you know, who Baldwin is going to call, but he's certainly going to need to call experts to testify about, you know, what happens on Hollywood sets and why he wasn't reckless and, you know, why he didn't disobey any any safety protocols. I think that they probably will do some surveys of audiences and potential juries and going to kind of get uh, an idea about what might play with a jury to see whether, you know, a jury wants to hear from you know, other actors or other, um, you know, technicians on a set or whether they want to hear from gun experts. But, you know, whatever, you know, convinces the jury is, is going to be part of the strategy. You know, so I can certainly imagine that Alec Baldwin might try out some of his fellow actors, maybe even some famous names. I'm sure that there are, are you know, many people who, who would be willing to come and support him. Uh, so that's a, certainly an interesting dynamic of this case as it goes forward. One thing that's still sort of mysterious to me about this case is that, if we're being hyper-technical here, Alec Baldwin hasn't actually been charged yet. Last week, the New Mexico prosecutor's office, they had a press conference where they announced that they were going to bring these charges. As far as we know, they haven't landed yet. It's possible that they are sealed somewhere and we just haven't seen them publicly. But 
What do you think are the odds that the prosecutor doesn't actually go forward? Or maybe they lower the charge to something that doesn't involve jail time? Like, is it possible that the prosecutor's office is sort of overreaching here, or even that this is some kind of negotiating tactic to push Baldwin to take a plea? I'd be very, very surprised if the prosecutors decide to back down already. I mean, it would just look very, very bad for them. You know, it's interesting in interviews, you know, that Baldwin has done. He He's denied actually even pulling the trigger. I would expect that the prosecutors would, you know, bring up the interviews that he's done, show how he denies pulling the trigger, and then call the FBI to the, and to the witness stand and say, Alec Baldwin says this. Do you agree with it? And the FBI says, no, I don't agree with that. And then all of a sudden, you know, you, you create a little, you know, tension and a reason to doubt Baldwin. And that's basically how you try to make a case. You know, for that reason, I think that, you know, Alec Baldwin maybe would have been more wise to have remained low and and, and not speak before, beforehand. Uh, I, you know, kind of trust them when they say that they're bringing charges, that they will indeed do so. Um, you know, for them to just come back a few days later and say, you know, we thought about it. And, you know, after months and months and months, you know, we just decided, you know, may, maybe we don't have a case. That would, you know, just be a terrible look. So it's it's certainly a strange situation why they didn't just have charges brought already and then just distributed the court papers to, to everyone. But I, I, I've certainly seen weird stuff in my career. That's a great point. Well, Eric, thanks for stopping by and explaining it to us. And we'll be watching to see what happens. Me too. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of The Powers That Be. As a reminder, The Powers That Be is the official podcast of Puck. We'd like to thank Ben Landy, Liz Goff, and Alex Bigler for their editorial and production guidance. If you like what you hear, please share with a friend. It really helps us keep delivering the inside scoop that only Puck can offer. Follow us on Twitter at Puck News. I'm Peter Hamby. See you tomorrow. This has been a presentation of Cadence 13 Studios. Please listen, rate, review, and follow all episodes wherever you get your podcasts. The Powers That Be Daily is executive produced by John Kelly, co-founder of Puck, Chris Corcoran, chief content officer and founding partner of Cadence 13, and produced by Ben Landy, executive editor at Puck. Puck.